Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the SIS Masters podcast. Our esteemed guest today is Michael Proman, who holds a position of Managing Director and Partner at Scrum Ventures, with a dedicated focus on the sports and entertainment world. Prior to Scrum, Michael worked with Coca-Cola and the NBA, before starting and ultimately exiting Optionit, a startup providing consumers enhanced convenience and flexibility when making purchasing decisions. Michael is a native Minnesotan and currently resides in the Twin Cities. Now, if you are intrigued by the sports tech world, its market, its verticals, its growth opportunities, and how Scrum Ventures identifies potential startup investments, what matters to Scrum Ventures, then this podcast is for you. Michael will share with us his extensive knowledge and insights on the ever-changing world of sports technology, a captivating and intricating field where trust and relationships are paramount. I've personally learned a lot. Enjoy and please share if you like it. Michael, how are you today back in the Twin City? Doing well. It's, uh, you know, you suffer through the winter months for uh, the spring and summer here. So I'm, uh, I'm excited. Major League Baseball is back in your city. It is actually uh, opening day got pushed one day because uh, if you'd believe it or not, it was snowing last night here. So uh, not too conducive to baseball these days, apparently. But uh, wins are uh, looking good this year, and uh, I'm excited for the shorter games because I my attention span is uh, limited. So you're in favor of the changes? hundred uh, <laughs> percent. Cool. But today we're not going to speak too much about baseball, but we're going to speak about sports tech. Sports tech trends, where to invest in sports tech. I mean, you're an expert in that. You're the managing director and partner at Scrum Sports and Entertainment inside Scrum Ventures. Scrum Venture is a venture capital firm that focuses on early stage investments in technology startups. Was founded in 2013, if I'm correct, based in San Francisco, uh, with additional offices in Tokyo, Japan. So we will start speaking about the sports tech world to understand it more then we will deep dive into scrum sports and entertainment and understand what your life is i mean being an md of a fund is not common so i'm sure many people are curious of to understand what is it like but to start with i, I would love to understand your journey yourself um can you tell us about how you transition from the sports business industry where you come from working in a venture capital fund yeah i i guess this is one of the 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 strangest i guess career cycles maybe in in the history of uh sports and, and entertainment but uh yeah i never really envisioned myself as, as somebody who would ever find myself on the venture side um and, or even in any type of a finance related capacity but i think the the kind of evolution of venture um has really aligned with my interests and passion points and experience and so i think back to my you know career journey it it really kind of originated um so to speak with with combining those passion points i i started taking mandarin chinese when i was super uh, young i was 11 years old and took it through high school and in college and at that point i'm like okay great i, I play american football and um, where do the kind of sport and, and, and Asian languages and, and, you know, uh, linguistic skill set kind of come together. And at the time, Beijing was bidding on the 2008 Olympics, uh, and had just been awarded the Olympics when I graduated college. And I'm like, I want to somehow position myself to, to get there. 
And so my first gig was probably the most impactful in my entire career uh, was with Coca-Cola, working in their global headquarters in Atlanta, working on FIFA um, as one of their um, properties on a global level, working on the Olympic Games um, in the buildup, both for 2004 in Athens and then uh, kind of the initial um, buildup for 2008. Uh, working on the National Basketball League at the time, Coke had the rights of, of the league. Uh, on an international basis. So it really just exposed me to both the brand side and and, and more importantly, I was surrounded by just incredibly talented individuals in the global uh, kind of worldwide sports group at Coke. And one of those guys in particular is a guy named Peter uh, Franklin. And, and, and Peter is by far probably my greatest mentor and somebody who's given me the best kind of coaching and guidance in, throughout my career. And I couldn't uh, think of a way to repay him for the the short time I was able to work under him. But from there, I elected to, to kind of go to New York City. Um, at the time, it was kind of a real tough decision. I moved to China, be part of the, the Olympics kind of on the ground. Um, but my then girlfriend, now wife, so I'd like to believe that that kind of worked out, uh, was in finance in, in, in the city. And I, I took that route and kind of the, the natural transition was to go and work for somebody on the property side, like the NBA. Um, I had obviously forged some really strong relationships within the league's corporate office while working at Coke. Um, and so it was a pretty seamless transition into that role. And, uh, again, kind of taking me back to those China roots, uh, at the time, the NBA, I think had two people on the ground in mainland China. Um, and it was kind of like, Hey, Mike, and a few other folks in their global business development team, go figure out how to monetize the league's brand and business outside the U S and so China was kind of a, a clear passion point of mine. It was an area of focus for the league. Um, it was kind of the perfect storm as well, because you think about people like Yao Ming uh, yeah. in China, and of course, Manu Ginobili uh, in Argentina, and Tony Parker, Dirk Nowitzki. I mean, you're talking about like the, 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 the true inflection point from the NBA being kind of a U.S. sports property to a global um, business and, and being able to be part of that evolution in you know four and a half years in the league's corporate offices was totally invaluable um worked uh, again alongside some of the best and brightest people in the league uh i've ridden a lot of coattails i would say from my experience there because those individuals have gone on to exceptional opportunities both still in the league and then outside uh within the industry itself so really fortunate to have those two kind of experiences early on in my career um, it really kind of enabled me to start developing a pretty rich network. And I would say, ultimately, today, it's a very commoditized industry, arguably on the talent side. But really, what differentiates in my mind is your ability to kind of maintain and um, obviously grow your network. That is, in my estimation, kind of my IP, so to speak, intellectual property. Um, you know, that's the thing that, you know, the people run circles around me. Uh, as far as intellect and, and abilities in, in various ways. Um, I'm fortunate to work with a lot of those people, but I think the thing that kind of keeps me on my toes is my ability to add value just based on the network that I developed. Um, back to kind of the career side, uh, long-winded answer, but uh, started a company after I left the league um, in kind of the early stages of, of what was is now sports tech, and it was kind of sports tech and fintech together called Option Edit. It, um, it's a whole nother, uh, you know, podcast there to talk about that. 
But the, uh, the 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 long of the short of it is we kind of scaled the business rather quickly and ultimately sold it to a private equity firm in Chicago in 2011, okay. at which point I transitioned more into uh, being a early stage advisor, consultant, investor, et cetera, for a number of years. And that's ultimately what took me into the venture side. Um, kind of the, again, the stars aligned kind of late in, in 2017, 2018, um, when Scrum was kind of continuing to uh, evolve and, and forge an identity. Um, again, going back to the Olympics, uh, Tokyo was was at that point a couple of years out uh, from the Summer Olympics and the relationships that our general partner, uh, Takmiata, had within the Japanese ecosystem, uh, and particularly with Dentsu, um, uh, kind of created an opportunity to to put on what I think has kind of been, in many respects, the gold standard for both kind of commercial activity and, and acceleration, uh, something called Sports Tech Tokyo. So that was a, my initial entry point um, into Scrum at the time. Um, it was helping uh, kind of create a, a gateway for best-in-class uh, global sports tech companies into the Japanese market ahead of the the 2000 or what was supposed to be the 2020 uh, Olympic Summer Games. Um, and, you know, to, to then play a, a broader role within the, the kind of growth of Scrum. And, you know, I will get into what Scrum does here shortly, um, and especially where the focus is now, but, um, uh, kind of a, a circuitous route into venture capital. Um, but I think it's a testament to the fact that what VC was 20 plus years ago, when I was kind of straight out of college, looking at jobs and what it is today is fundamentally different. Um, I think it's a lot of kind of qualitative, uh, and relationship-driven um, individuals. It's less of a kind of finance-only kind of club. Um, I'm not the most quantitative person in the world. I think anybody close to me would recognize that and, and probably double down on that statement. But um, ultimately, to be successful in the venture world, it's not about Excel spreadsheets or anything of that nature. It's really more about um, you know how you can help um, impact the, the, the life cycle of some of these early-stage companies. Mm, interesting. So you've been on the brand side with Coca-Cola for years, by the way, yep. hi to Kiribo, yep. who presented uh, to, to each other. Um, you've been on the property side, on the startup side with uh, with an exit, so successful. Then you move uh, to the private equity sector. Talking about the sports tech, you say it has changed a lot in, in, the, in the last 10, 20 years. Um, according to Drake Star report, you know, the global sports tech industry in 2022 saw a record year in terms of deals with more than 1,000 deals, $90 billion in disclosed deal value, which is massive. More yep. than $9 billion was raised. Uh, over $5 billion of new funds were raised by financial investors and buyers. What, what does it make you think? <laughs> Yeah, it's uh, it, it, you know, it's it's interesting, right? I mean, it, it depends kind of who you ask sometimes um, what to make of that. Um, I think there's always an attraction with sports and entertainment. Not only is it kind of a passion point for folks, um, it it embodies a lot of kind of where we spend our time and discretionary dollars. And in some respects, the industry, you know, probably that, that fuels that statement is is a little behind, right? It's it's always been kind of a second mover or even a tertiary type of um, kind of mover in, in the space. And, and innovation has traditionally 
um, kind of come into the space. So sports and entertainment has been a net uh, importer of, of innovation and technology. I think they borrow from places like travel and leisure and from fintech and from healthcare and other forms, right? But I think what, what's happening here, a couple of things. Number one, the talent within the sports and entertainment space in terms of the management of teams, leagues, properties, media outlets, um, and other kind of tech providers has just gotten extraordinarily, um, you know, good, um, right? And, and you know, I think that, that's a leading indicator, right? It always starts with the right people making the decisions. And I think you're starting to see a, a kind of a changeover in terms of the leadership structure within uh, the space itself. I think the second piece here is really about kind of how do we define sports and sports tech? And if you had asked me 15 years ago or so when I started kind of my first company, it, it was like literally probably a dozen companies at that point. And you'd see these people at the same conferences and be like, oh, yeah, this is the, this is the sports tech industry, right? Uh, and now, uh, I think particularly over the course of the pandemic, those lines have blurred a lot. Um, you know, when I look at things and particularly in the athlete performance space, when you think of like sleep health or dietary health and things that um, elite athletes need, but you and I need just as much, right? Those things, those technologies were not probably classified as sports or sports tech. Um, they may have been healthcare. It may have been wellness, which is a whole new, right? Um, kind of uh, subset of the industry. So I think what you're you're kind of seeing here in terms of those those big numbers is not just like the endemic technologies have gotten bigger and better and faster and everything else there, but really what's happening is that you're starting to see all these adjacencies, um, and that's now I guess in some way and in, in, in some people's definition classified as sports tech, which is great. Um, I think any time that you can positively or personally impact somebody's life, right? They're going to be more inclined or interested to invest. So you're seeing more athlete uh, investors. You're seeing more teams and, and leagues now obviously set up their own funds to get involved. Now, that's a good thing. I think if you're a startup founder, right? More capital, more access to opportunities, commercial opportunities, all that's really positive. I think the challenge the industry has right now, and we'll get into this, I'm sure, through the discussion, is that not all money is good money, right? Because what ultimately happens, and I think what we're seeing just in outside of sports as well, is that valuations of some of these, quote unquote, sports tech companies have gotten to an absurd level um, for an industry that doesn't have the TAM to support those valuations. So, so the time yeah. you mentioned. For an industry that does not have the time to support those valuation, what does yep. it mean? Yeah, so I think you look at sports, right, and, and sports tech. Um, when you think of a customer base within sports, I think everyone's first kind of inclination is, well, I'm going to sell into a team, or I'm going to sell into a league, or I'm going to sell into a property, I'm going to sell into a media outlet, right? Well, there's only a finite number of those types of customers out there, as everyone knows, right? Number one. Number two the sales cycles of selling into those customers are extraordinarily long, um, the way that fiscal calendars are set up, et cetera. And then kind of the dirty secret or not so much a secret, right, is that teams and leagues and properties are notoriously cheap, right? They're always going to get bottom dollar because the fact that it is a marketing channel just as much as it is a customer. 
And so teams are always going to use the, well, we'll put you in front of X number of eyeballs and give you that high profile kind of rub that nobody else can give you, right? And I think a lot of startups fall into that trap of saying, oh, I'll discount my product because of the fact that I'm working with XYZ team. Well, it, you immediately start to almost devalue in some cases. And, and in some cases, it's counterintuitive and counterproductive because you're spending more time taking in less money. And ultimately, that doesn't necessarily scale. So getting back to your question before, um, I think ultimately, when you look outside of sports, when you look at enterprise software, when you look at really things that are not sexy at all, right, <laughs> that have a B2B customer base, those companies are able to really uh, kind of get those venture style returns because they operate in an environment where it's like, I don't really care about the fact that like my customer is, is a, a, you know, an NHL team that, you know, has won, you know, 70 games this year. Um, that, that makes no like rhyme or reason as to why I sell in. I sell in because it's a good business um, practice. And so I think when you look at sports and venture is that everybody has different expectations of what the return is. If you're a, like a, a family fund or a team, if you're an athlete, you might not even care, right? Because there's a strategic relevance in terms of your investment there. And while that's good for founders to bring in capital and create commercial relationships, again, the problem goes back to valuation. If there, if there are investors who are kind of, I guess, just totally oblivious or just, again, fundamentally disinterested in, in valuation-related conversations or return profile, that really hurts venture style investors who are looking for that 10, 20, 40 X type of opportunity, because you can't find that if a company is pre-revenue, you know, <laughs> pre-money at 20 million, just because they can get a check in the door from some athlete or some notable investor, right? And so that's what makes my job, I think, a little bit more challenging versus somebody else who might invest in venture is that we're, we have a fiduciary responsibility, both to our LPs and then to ourselves to get those venture style returns in an industry where there historically have not been those kind of 50 or 75 X type of exits that you would occasionally see in these other high growth industries. So hmm. there are kind of playbooks and in, in, in ways in which we're kind of combating that and looking to positively kind of um, connect with sports and sports tech companies, but do so in a way that enables us to kind of, um, secure those venture style returns. Hmm, interesting. So, and to to complete this and to complete the understanding of the sports tech world, you mentioned a lot of B two B solutions and that a right owner of property is a buyer, so a potential client, but a, a marketing channel, which I find very interesting um, and dangerous at the same time. <laughs> uh, there's also the B two C side. Uh, or sports tech and entertainment solutions, not only the B2B, uh, yeah. which is, I, I guess, growing a lot. So what do you think as a main, to understand what are the main verticals of the sports and entertainment tech industry sure. uh, that have been growing in the past or that you think will grow uh, because of the need to, you know, get these dollars from the fans? So I think, you know, the way that I think about things and, you know, you could ask another investor and probably get a fundamentally different set of answers here. But 
Um, I, I look, it, it starts and ends for me within kind of the addressable market. So the TAM, uh, and the ones that are growing are the ones that have diverse customer bases that reach audiences outside of sport, right. That have the ability to pivot, um, and not just pivot, but maybe only 20% of their revenue is sports specific. Right. And the other 80 is coming from, I don't know, again, make it up, travel and leisure customers or healthcare or fintech or mobility or right. Um, so that's what excites me is, is looking for companies that speak to this industry, but may not be looking to kind of, you know, take a hundred percent of their revenue from sports. So you have your endemic technologies, ones that are in, entirely focused on the industry. Those are probably not going to be ones with a few exceptions that I'm going to get super excited about mm-hmm. um, because I know that there is a fundamental ceiling to where this industry is at. And, you know, again, as an investor, it's great if we can get, you know, uh, the, the type of return that we're looking for may be fundamentally different than what a team who's investing is looking for or what an angel is looking for or somebody like that, right? Um, and so I think when you talk about what the what those exceptions are, I think one of them in particular is is the gaming and betting sector, right? It's kind of the space inside the space. And I say that because, you know, to me, betting is like going back to like a gym in Springfield, Massachusetts in the late 1800s with Naismith, right? Hmm. We are so kind of in the infancy right now that 20 years from now, we'll look back at 2023 and be like, God, that was the early day for sports betting, right? Even hmm. though this has been going on in some states for you know a matter of, of years at this point. Um, and so to get in at this level with the right companies and the right valuations is kind of a, it almost a once in a generation type of opportunity. There will be other like new technologies that come in. And, and again, we want to be kind of first to market in those. I would say gaming and betting is is one that you know we've already started to kind of put our kind of stake in the ground in, um, and we're looking for uh, to continually build our portfolio around those solutions because of the scale potential both here in North America and then in growth markets around the world that will open up even further in the betting side. So that's one of them. The other ones you ask about in terms of growth categories that we're certainly excited about are um, the, again the ones that have kind of application or relevance outside the vertical. Um, so, you know, it's almost know. like it sports was used as a showcase to them. Exactly. It's a solution to be able to expand. Yep. So a good example is one of our portfolio companies um, and, and that we've invested in as well and, and, and called Misapplied Sciences. Right. And so, you know, if you look at what Misapplied does, nobody would say that's a sports tech company. And just so for those that don't know, Misapplied Sciences, they've pioneered uh, what I'll refer to and what uh, their CEO, Albert Nung, will say is, is parallel reality. So you and I can look at something and get two fundamentally different experiences, right? Which is kind That's of great. tricky. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's, <laughs> it's, uh, uh, I, I, and so their first deployment commercially was, was actually with Delta Airlines, who's both a commercial partner and an equity holder in the company. And if you travel through Detroit's metro airport, you can see it in person and you can experience this. But again, what what excites me as a sports tech investor, so to speak, is that that technology that has been now deployed in other high-dense environments like an airport, 
is also relevant to stadiums, arenas, and other kind of sports-specific venues, right? And so you're going to see very quickly a couple early installations uh, within the next year in those types of environments, right? So it may start outside of sports and, and migrate in, uh, or in some cases, it may start in sports and then you know migrate out um, into other uh, growth channels as well. So, um, so I, I would say when I think about venue technology, which is an important kind of area for us uh, as a, a venture fund and, and certainly an area that is intriguing to a lot of our LPs, um, is that I'm looking for things that have kind of broad-based applications, things that are in the biometric space, for example, that could speak to safety and security, that could speak to mobile ordering, that could speak to um, kind of that grab-and-go technology, like a company like Zippin, right? Um, Zippin is ubiquitous around airports, train stations, and other, again, high-dense environments. So I like to think about things not just in the context of a ballpark or an arena, but where is this company going to continue to see traction and how are they going to be the best in class? It starts with good technology, good product, good leadership, all the kind of key indicators of success, but also having that vision that isn't as kind of, I would say, narrow-minded as to say, we're just going to be a sports-focused you know, focused entity or sports-focused technology. So that those are the things, again, that, that get me um, excited and you know, I'm on my fourth cup of coffee here, so you don't really have to get me energized. Or- <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it's interesting because so many times, as, at least in a sport, not too much in sport and entertainment, but, you know, you've got so many solutions coming out on the sports performance side that are not, that are made for the coaches, for example, or such as wearable and data analytics solutions to help you develop strategies and prepare better. So, uh, Harder to scale, how to as you as you mentioned, limited limited set of potential clients, limited applications outside of the field of sports. Eventually, except if you succeed in finding the B two C application. Yep. Hmm. So yeah, so it's not for most people. It's not the op- the one the solutions that are the most visible that are the most interesting. I would say. Exactly right. It, it it's both looking in many respects. I get more of my inspiration and I get more ideas on deal flow spending time outside of sports than I do in it. And I think that's something that a lot of you know folks in the industry. You know, I always say like you know you go to a meeting and it's like okay great, but it's always like who's missing, right? If we're talking to the same people and we're only kind of narrow minded, um, we're going to miss the bigger opportunity. And so. I always try to, you know, look at like travel, right? I travel a lot. Um, you travel a lot. Everyone travels these days. I try to use those opportunities as learnings and saying, okay, I'm walking through an airport. I'm going through security. I'm in a, a, a club environment. I'm boarding a plane. I'm, you know, what are those little kind of subtleties? And I'm thinking like, hmm, is there applicability here because of the natural kind of connection between an, an industry like travel and leisure and sports that could have application here? And if so, what are those technologies, right? Um, and then getting a little bit more curious. So I think it starts with a level of curiosity. It starts with surrounding yourself with 
people that don't think entirely like you, that don't come from the same places that you come from, right? I mean, it's kind of just good business to 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 have those diverse teams, um, and that's ultimately what's going to take us into what I think is kind of that next generation technology. So one thing that I'm really passionate about, Arnold, is, um, you know, think of like personal biomarkers. Um, if I asked you right now, what's your blood type? I, I guarantee you 90 plus percent of folks don't even know what type of blood they have, hmm. right? Um, if If I asked you about the importance of glucose, you'd be like, and you're not diabetic, right? Uh-huh. Why do I care? Right? Uh-huh. Like, so think of like things that you and I both kind of realistically are, are, are have access to in terms of information, but yet we still don't understand a what it is and B how it's beneficial to my health and recovery and all the things that um, are important, whether again, you're an elite athlete or you're just somebody just trying to, you know, stay on top of your game as a 42 year old. Right. And so I look at it and say, okay, I think personally, continuous glucose monitoring will be um, a data point that, you know, becomes fully ubiquitous within the next two or three years. And I think Mm -hmm. Apple and Samsung, based on their their kind of, you know, wearable technology, you're going to see non-invasive. Exactly. Right. So, So thinking about things that used to only have a niche audience. So when you mentioned glucose, right, you're like, okay, again, not diabetic. I don't care. I think, again, that conversation, that's changing. Um, And there are going to be winners, obviously, as you think about technology and startups and people who are out there pioneering new solutions and helping optimize things like recovery um, along the way. So that, again, you could say that that's a healthcare conversation just as much as it is a sports tech conversation. But I like to kind of blur those lines. I like to kind of fish in the peripheral of sports plus something else. And that's where maybe it makes it interesting being at Scrum Ventures because Scrum Ventures, it's early stage startups. Um, You manage the sports and entertainment, but you work with your colleagues that are from all different verticals. Um, so, So I would guess it gives you a lot more knowledge and... Uh, so it can be very useful to detect in sports and entertainment because you say it's it's you can plug it plug solutions to sports and entertainment or export in some ways outside of and in. Uh, so let us know more about Scrum Venture Sports yeah. and Entertainment itself because we I know with you you're so open minded that you will share on a lot of things except what you do. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, well, that's, you know, that's obviously the, that's the secret sauce, right? Um, the um, But I think you nailed it, right? Is that, it, it, you know, there's what I think about kind of, I go back to like, what's your IP, right? Like mm-hmm. I, I think about my personal IP and I say, my IP is my network. It's mm-hmm. kind of who I've been able to cultivate relationships with and who I can literally pick up the phone right now and be able to connect with on a meaningful level. I think about Scrum and say, okay, there are thousands of venture capital firms out there. And realistically, any of them um, could play in sports. What makes us unique is that you nailed it, right? It's our DNA is we're generalist investors. We're not sports tech investors. Um, When we got started 10 plus years ago, it wasn't saying we're going to own sports. That was never the intent 
uh, at the time, I think it was, we're going to look for great companies, you know, reasonable valuations, high growth industries, great founders, the, like basically the, the, the recipe for any type of success, right? Now, over the lifespan of our general funds, we're on our fourth fund right now. Um, we've invested in companies that are quote unquote sports tech or have kind of uh, a heightened point of emphasis in sports. It's by no means the majority of the portfolio. In fact, it's a small minority of the, our general portfolio. Uh, we've made over 100 investments in that portfolio. And I would probably say generously, maybe 10 of them have done things with teams, leagues, properties, or something that is sports specific, right? So the greater majority of our investments have nothing to do with sports. Now, that being said, all of the partners, everybody who kind of makes Scrum what it is, come from diverse kind of backgrounds and perspectives, right? So we're able to kind of take our relationships, our learnings, in some cases, our biases, um, and, and apply that to both the sourcing, you know, and, and, and certainly the screening of companies to determine what are kind of those, those next kind of tier investments. Now, over the course of time with Scrum, and this is kind of a new development within the last four or five months, again, we've been vertically kind of agnostic uh, in terms of our decision making, well, we having launched, uh, you know, the the latest fund is much more vertically specific, and it's the first of what will be hopefully many funds that then say, okay, great, we could invest in this company out of a general fund. There's, of course, we have a lot of discretion to do that, but what we understand is we're going to take those best practices, those learnings, and everything that we've been able to generate over the ten plus years that we've been around, and then find meaningful results in this vertical specifically, right? And I think it starts with the talent um, around um, that those, right? Um, you know, I'm, I'm fortunate to partner with Kazu Kiyoshige, who's, you know, 30 plus years of industry relationships and knowledge, um, just leading Dentsu Americas and their sports division here in the U.S. Uh, for a period of time, just, you know, exceptional relationships, obviously, within Japan, which we'll talk about, I'm sure, in a moment as well. Yeah. Um, and, you know, Kazu's background and, and mine in particular, um, well, we may play in the same sandbox. I think, you know, we have very complementary uh, relationship network. And that's what's really kind of given us that that lift. And I think in many respects, uh, the ability to really max out. Uh, and then you combine that with Tak, Miata, our, our general partners, um, expertise really in in kind of just the investment space. And, and to me, that's like the trifecta, right? And, and so we're trying to replicate those types of approaches in other high growth industries moving forward. Um, we'll still obviously look to do more generalist investing. That's not like some massive pivot. Um, I think this is just kind of above and beyond what we've been known for uh, historically. So I'm excited about kind of the the strategic direction um, the the fact that we have a lot of really really talented people on our team um, that I get to call colleagues both here in the U.S. and and then obviously in Japan as well. So Japan not only because of the origin of the founders of Scrum Ventures and strategically why why Japan? I mean, yeah. I mean it's yep. obviously it's a big market itself. But, you know, many people think about the U.S., about China, <laughs> Western Europe. And you guys, at the beginning, we were sports tech Japan. 
Yeah. So, you know, Japan, uh, you know, again, it goes back to kind of the DNA of the company. Uh, our founder and general partner, Takmiata, is a very accomplished entrepreneur who uh, had a couple of very strong exits, who's developed, you know, impeccable relationships uh, within the corporate sector in Japan and was able to gain that level of trust and understanding with um, those folks. And, and you know, we we're able to, to raise capital. Um, you know, through our limited partner base, primarily in Japan, although we're starting to diversify more right now, which is exciting. Um, I think when I think about Japan too, it's, it's very similar to kind of my roots with China, right? It's, it's, it's a tough, it's a relationship driven market, right? It, it requires a long-term, um, kind of commitment. And I think it also requires the right kind of team to help kind of expeditiously, uh, look at opportunities. Um, I think anybody who's who's worked in Japan knows that you have to have a lot of patience and you have to um, be committed, right, to the market. And it's going to take time. It's not an overnight proposition by any means um, in terms of breaking into that market. At the same time, Japan is the third largest economy in the world, right? So if you're a high growth startup looking to diversify customers and kind of grow your business, particularly in the Asian market, it's almost it's it's a, I need to be here versus I want to be here. Mm-hmm. I think things like the Olympics, right, that, that came to Japan, um, you know, particularly on the sports side, um, just accelerated that need for folks in this industry. It also kind of raised greater awareness within Japan that you know we need to upgrade venues. We need to come up with next generation technology that connects in person kind of attendees to proxy audiences. So a lot more of an investment needs to be made in the media side. Um, we need to think about ways to develop our own startup community here such that we can start exporting technology outside of the country. So I think for us to be kind of synonymous with the Japanese market is one of the biggest kind of um, benefits that we could possibly have. Um, it's it's a market that I think everybody will say they want to be in. And very few are able to say that we're actually optimizing revenue or you know business operations there. And so when we you know talk to startups and we sell them just as much as they sell us, um, it's really about a couple of things. It's about what we can do for them here, just broad based, right, based on our connections and relationships and everything else that an investor brings. But then more importantly, in a strategic level, many times is how can we help you know literally. Um, go from you know zero to one or from one to twenty in a very short amount of time in a market like Japan. Um, and that starts with having boots on the ground in places like Tokyo. It starts with some of the strategic uh, priorities of our partners in the, in the market and understanding kind of where to best curate and identify opportunities. And then it looks at kind of what are those kind of next, generation events that are coming to the market and how will that impact both our portfolio and some of our investment decisions moving forward. Hmm. We've been organizing with the CIS Congress in Japan about innovation summit. And it was fantastic to have a small picture because it's so complex to understand Japan in tech hmm. years. Uh, but to have this kind of first feeling of the mix of tradition and so much modernity. So much modernity in different things. First, one to use robots to give services, but as, but on the other side, you've got this tradition of how you do things and how you connect with each other with so much codes. So I'm yeah. sure, as someone not born 
in Japan, uh, it, must, it must be quite interesting and challenging as well to understand the codes and how to leverage trade, trust, and leverage relationships. A hundred percent. I mean, when I think about it, it you know, I'm, I'm in it for the sushi. Let's just start there, right? It all starts and ends for me on the culinary side. Um, you know, the Japanese whiskeys are phenomenal as well. So I, I do do a little quality control when I when I go into the market. Um, so it's not all just, uh, you know, uh, just about business in any respect. But I think you have to have a deep appreciation for the culture and, and for the priorities. And I think the relationships that we've been able to establish many times with our limited partners in the market um, are the most meaningful, um, it, it, you know, to to gain to both understand and have that level of trust and, and and kind of share a common kind of vision for how we're going to innovate. Um, that that to me is like the foundation for anything. Once you've established that, then it's like, okay, great. Now let's figure out how we can make this work in this environment. Um, and I think you nailed it as well, right? Is that Japan, you look at some of the near-term wins particularly in sports that have come out of Japan, right? Like world baseball classic. I mean, what an amazing yeah. kind of inflection point, right? Is, you know, on a world stage for the Japan national team to not just win, but win in the fashion they did um, over the team USA, that was a statement. I mean, it was a statement that, you know, we're not here just to kind of, you know, aspire towards this. We're here to set the standard. And I think you're going to start to see that now, not just on the performance side and kind of the level of play, but you're also going to see that on things like venues. Um, there was a great story uh, earlier today, actually, in uh, a sports business journal about the new Hokkaido ballpark, right? Mm -hmm. So um, when you start thinking about these things, it's like, okay, you're starting to see a roadmap to what the next generation looks like there. Um, you know, I grew, <laughs> grew up in the Twin Cities, right? Um, I suffered through watching Twins games in the Metrodome, right? That was so outdated and it was so antiquated until finally you get target feel and it's like, wow, look what we have now. And, you know, I think it's the same type of feeling, right? Is that a lot of the venues and the infrastructure um, in the market um, will change and they'll change really quickly. Um, I think when you start setting the gold standard, for both kind of on field, like the baseball team did, and what the venue experience can and should be with Hokkaido, everybody's going to want it. And the the great part about Japan, which probably is to me the the competitive advantage, is that a lot of the teams are all owned by large corporations, yeah. so they think like businesses and they can actually make real um, progressive changes in a way that both kind of, you know, supports their kind of core businesses and at the same time have that as an identity. Um, so it's so not only, maybe it's not only short, less short-term views and more mid and long-term views. A hundred percent, right? It, it, you see the turnover right now with a lot of the, you know, higher profile franchises, whether it be the Washington Commanders or whether it be Manchester United or any of this other stuff, Right. You know, at the end of the day, that that's not going to go away. But you don't see that happening in Japan. And I think there's a level of stability and continuity within all of these um, organizations. And I think, especially now, as those organizations bring on the right talent and they get smarter and they start leveraging technology in different aspects of their business, 
the natural evolution is, well, that's just going to bleed into things like the way in which they manage uh, and operate their, their teams, right? So um, our ability to help kind of support on multiple levels is really critical. Yeah, super interesting. But does it mean that the companies you support, you invest in, they have to operate in Japan or they have to be from Japan or it's independent? Yeah, so the, most of our investments are, are, are outside of Japan. Uh, in fact, I would say, you know, we've made four portfolio investments to date uh, uh, in, in this fund and, and uh, none of them are Japanese companies. Now, um, we are actively looking at a couple right now. So um, it's, it's, it's not going to be exclusively ex-Japan by any means. But I think our belief is we can add more value oftentimes uh, outside of Japan from a startup lens to help them then break into a market like Japan. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, they're going to be Japanese startups that have aspirations of kind of exporting their technology to other places in the world. And those are going to be the opportunities I think that we're going to be most excited about because then we can help support that growth. Do you see leadership from Japan in some areas of technologies outside of sports? Yeah, it's uh, for sure. Uh, I mean, I, I think it, Japan has always been seen as a leader in, in things like mobility and robotics and uh, other high growth industries. Um, sports, it's it's been more challenging, I think, probably to find Japanese startups that you would say over index um, on a global level. Um, and I think a lot of that is the fact that, you know, the, the industry is, is still in its infancy in, in Japan and, you know, we're the, which also is great because it, it presents a great opportunity to kind of modernize, um, venue infrastructure and the way in which, um, content is, is being kind of, um, disseminated and, and everything else. Um, one area that again, going back to the adjacency piece is in the media side. I think in, in Japan, um, we're, I, I'm personally intrigued by some of the stuff that's happening there, particularly in a space like, um, think of anime, right? Um, or magna-based technology, um, things that are probably more kind of consistent with an Asian uh, customer base than they have been anywhere else in the world. But I think when you look at the levels of avidity right now for anime in places like the US and in Europe and other places, um, it's there. But unfortunately, access to those markets hasn't caught up. So I think those are spaces, again, that we're really excited about. Hmm. Interesting. So right now, you've made four investments, if I understood well. Mm -hmm. um, to understand your role, um, what is a day in your life? I mean, you're the MD of a fund. You're in search of gold <laughs> in some ways. Well, it's, a, it's a very long day, I'll tell you that, because when you're dealing with, um, you know, cross-border investing and, and colleagues around the world, um, it's a marathon. It's not a sprint. It's probably one of the reasons why I've uh, been more of an endurance athlete in this stage of my life than anything else. Um, but what is a day like? It's A day starts probably with me. Um, you know, sweating profusely on the Peloton and, and, and you know, getting the blood going, drinking, you know, an absurd amount of coffee. Um, but the reality is um, it, it's also about, you know, being visible and connecting with folks, um, both internally and then on an external level. And, uh, you know, I, again, I go back to kind of what is it that, that drives me personally? Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's the connections, it's the relationships. If I'm not having a meaningful conversation with somebody outside of my kind of core network, 
every day, I feel behind. If I'm not reading um, consistently, when whether it be industry trades um, or more importantly, um, uh, sources that are outside of sports, uh, I'm not doing anything for myself. So I love looking at things, you know, a lot of investors will read, you know, TechCrunch or, you know, uh, VentureBeat or, or any of those other sources. I think the, the the trap that a lot of folks in sports fall into is that they look at Sportico or SBJ um, or these just niche industry publications as the, you know, the start and the end of their day. And, you know, they're not getting curious sometimes about what's outside this industry. So uh, the nice thing is from a network perspective, I like to tap into insights. I read, you know, I, I'm on LinkedIn probably 10 hours a day, it seems like. Um, just looking for sources of information and nuggets of kind of gold in my mind um, that may not be, you know, something that, that you know, I would look at um, just if, 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 you know, I was just kind of doing my day to day. Yeah, yeah. Your IP, which is your network and consolidating your network, curiosity, which you mentioned at the beginning and now again, uh, which is part of your great big value added. Uh, and how much do you spend on, for example, to to understand how much do you spend on? Oh, I need to raise money and the relation with uh, with uh, with people I raise money from. How much do I spend on scouting solutions? How much do, time do I spend on evaluating solutions and thinking or partnering with others to say ah, and then come to a decision? Yeah, it's. It, I, I mean, there's never a consistent. I mean, it ebbs and flows. I mean, if you had asked me that question at the beginning of the year, I'd probably give you a different answer. You know, post Silicon Valley Bank, you know, things kind of pause, they start and stop, and uh, it, it, you know, like it, again, you just have to kind of identify these kind of these kind of signals, um, and, and and you know, they're going to be priorities, just like travel, right? Like some months it's like you feel like you're constantly you know sleeping in hotels and on planes and then the next month you know maybe it's one trip right so it you gotta like just as a startup founder right like you don't get too emotionally like distraught when things are bad and you don't get too emotionally high when things are good right you gotta like just understand there is kind of like this is a longer term proposition it's about not kind of overreacting because I think that's where people struggle is that they start making impulsive decisions based on something that may occur and not see it as kind of fad versus fixture, right? So I, maybe it's the Midwestern roots in me, but like as much as I kind of look at myself as, as much more coastal, um, I like to kind of be like, okay, the world's not going to end. At least I don't think so in certain ways let's take a pause, let's take a breath, like, um, just not get too emotionally like attached. And I think maybe it's the old age in me or something like that. Cause that was not me, you know, even five years ago, I was probably much more kind of like, you know, <laughs> high energy and, 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 uh, uh, maybe I'm drinking more decaf these days. I don't know, but, uh, but yeah, no. So I, so I think that that, that, that's critical. Right. And then it's just a, it's a continuous balance. And I think if you're doing it right um, in terms of the balance, because of how incestuous the conversations are, you, they, they just bleed together. Right. I could be talking with one of our LPs about a particular space or, uh, you know, an investment that we're looking at, and they may give me a nugget of information that I haven't thought about. 
And that may also then say, hey, I should reach out to XYZ investor who I haven't talked to for a while and get their perspective on what I just heard over here. And now I had that conversation. And then they just told me, well, you know, I invested in this company and I should connect you to the founder over here. Like, so again, it's it, it's kind of like one of those choose your own adventure books. I think if you do it right, you end up in a good spot at the end. Um but at the end of the day, like you have to be open to new ideas and new conversations and a little bit more of that kind of um, kind of serendipity, uh, because if you have too much of a game plan and you're too kind of emotionally vested in like, you know, your way, um, you're, you're ultimately going to fall in these potholes. So, I, I, again, I like to be a little bit more impulsive. Hmm. That's super interesting. Um so if you know what you expect in the mid and long term, but the process to get there is quite surprising onto, onto you, on what I understand. It's not, I want to go to a conference, I will select at that date, then I will invest at that date. It doesn't work. It's not as simple. It's, uh, it's Yeah, you can, you can definitely have a plan, but I think the, 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 you can't dig your heels in, right? I mean, like, we have a plan to make, you know, X number of investments this year, right? Like, and arguably, like, if we make two more than that or two less, the world's still going to be there, right? And you know, presumably, we're going to be in a, 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 a the same spot, which I hope is a good spot. Um, so, you know, well, we do have OKRs. Well, everybody has KPIs. I think what's really important is like you have to constantly refine those things, and you have to ask yourself: Are you doing it for the right reasons, or are you doing it because? It's something that you set out as a goal on paper, you know, 12 months ago when the world looked fundamentally different. <laughs> How much do we work with other investors? Do you co- do you like to co-invest or you very much work on your own? Um, yeah, I, I mean, I'm I am uh, some it's interesting. I am probably that is the part of me that I love the most is, is co-investing and sharing deal flow. And it's interesting because I've heard, heard people say, well, don't you want to be terrified? Like, don't you want nobody else to be? I'm like, no, 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 no. Like the, at the end of the day, like the, our check size is going to most likely be a co-investment. So that means we need to be investing with the right partners here for these companies to be successful. And it's a give and take, right? We're going to kind of share deal flow with folks because we want them to be part of the rounds and vice versa, right? And and so um, I think you start developing a network and you start developing trust with other venture investors in particular um, over time when you are just open and transparent about kind of what's interesting and, and you know, being able to provide objective if, and, and in some cases biased introductions. Um, because that's what makes this industry better is that, you know, I had a call yesterday with a founder that, you know, we're, we're not going to invest in their company. I made it very clear to this guy, like, this is just not an area of focus, but at the same time, you know, he wanted to talk to three people in my network. Of course, I'm going to connect him and I'm going to connect him in the right context. And I think there's value kind of mutually there between both kind of the startup founders and, and as well as investors because they're actively looking for good deal flow. And, and if I can be kind of the epicenter of that connection, well, over time, that's going to be a good reflection of me. And, and hopefully it'll be something that I then can can take advantage of in the in the future as well. All about creating, again, meaningful relationships. 100%. I mean, yeah. I mean, if, you know, 
I, I, I always kind of look back and say, okay, like when I ultimately say I'm done working in venture, what is, what are going to be, what's my reputation going to look like? Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and that's both kind of as a manager and somebody that for people that I work with on a, on a day-to-day level, it's for startup founders, it's for other investors. And I want to be able to kind of write that narrative and work backwards, right. <laughs> and say, you know, how am I going to get to where I want to be? Uh, because as you know, in this industry, your reputation is pretty much the only in, in everything that you have. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, there are going to be times that, uh, you know, that, that kind of make that uh, challenging. But at the end of the day, that's always going to be kind of my North Star is making sure that, you know, I'm where I want to kind of position myself personally. Very interesting. Um, nice way to conclude and go back to the human basics. <laughs> uh, well, yeah. In some ways, uh, before we totally conclude, I've got a, we've got a ritual. You have uh, you haven't seen the questions before. <laughs> we've yeah. got a ritual, which is a series of quick questions for quick answers. Nice. Your favorite athlete of all time, Nolan Ryan. Again, Nolan Ryan. Why? No, I, 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 no I'm joking. Uh, that was that was my favorite athlete growing up, and and these are supposed to be quick answers. So so um, uh, no, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna say no on that one. Um, God, I, you know I, I've I've been around so many. Um, you know I I love Yao Ming, and and yeah, I'm not gonna give qualify why because I know these are quick answers, but I would say Yao Ming. Yao Ming, yeah, yeah. Your favorite coach? My favorite coach was was my my first boss, Peter Franklin. That's Coca-Cola. Yeah. Why is that? He embodies a lot of the, the the things that I aspire to be and and what I think about um when I hold myself to to kind of certain standards. Um, you know, if I can do that uh at a fraction of the level that he was able to achieve over his career, I'm I'm gonna be okay. Definitely. What's your favorite event? My favorite event, probably the Nathan's Coney Island 4th of July hot dog eating contest. Um, <laughs> yeah. no, that's totally legit, by the way. Um, I just, I think, you know, again, it, it, it kind of goes, it, it's on brand for me, not just because I love to eat. I, I don't like hot dogs, um, surprisingly, but um, it also kind of is on brand because it's about not taking yourself that seriously. Um, and, you know, I think at the end of the day, well, competitive eating and, and, and those athletes probably do. Um, I just, I, I love the fact that you can find passion points that kind of bring people together that create that tribalism. Uh, and at the same time are not kind of people overthink it too much. So um, th- those are the things that excite me. Surprising one. What is your favorite stadium? Ooh, that's a that's a tough one. Um, well, it's 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 constantly evolving. Um, I'm excited to see some of the new infrastructure that's being built right now. But I, if I have to say, I'm I'm pretty biased to US Bank Stadium. I'm a huge Vikings fan, which means I'm probably a glutton for punishment because I've never seen them in a Super Bowl or even win a Super Bowl. Uh, I'm hopeful in my lifetime that will be the case. But uh, they play in, in in arguably the best venue in the NFL, and it's you know uh, a ten minute drive from my house. So I'm I'm uh, I'm, I'm going to stay lo- local on that one. 
Your favorite word. My favorite word is uh, uh, kind of perseverance. I think um, you, you just one, you got, yeah. one great advice you have received or learned you would like to share. Hmm. You know, I, it, it's you know kind of a lot of introspection and and you know again going back to the relationship side is is you know never discount relationships. I mean that that is kind of if 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 you have one thing um relationships going to get you a lot further than anything else hmm. if heaven exists what would you like to hear god say when you arrive at the pearly gates wow that's a that's a that's a deep question uh you know maybe a pat on the back or nice work like you know you did something right um yeah go and have a beer with peter <laughs> yeah, you know, I'm 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 a big fan of uh, you know, bonding over alcoholic beverages. Um responsibly, of course. But uh yeah. Michael, thank you so much uh for your precious time. Lots of learning for me, hopefully as well for the audience of SIS Masters podcast. Thank you for having us. We've been in touch and we uh thank you for the constant support. Um I wish you the best for your endeavors. Hopefully I'll be soon in Minnesota. It's, we've been speaking too many times. No, we need to meet in Minnesota. For yeah, I, I would say between the months of April and October, probably the uh, Chamber of Commerce ones. Uh, so uh, yeah, you're, you're hitting your stride right now and uh, you're always welcome here. I look forward to seeing you soon. And, and thank you again for having me. This is certainly an honor. And uh, you know, talk about relationships. This is one that I cherish as well. Thanks so much, my friend, and all the best. Thank you all for listening to a new SIS Masters podcast. We'd love you to subscribe. Please leave a review or rate the podcast. It will help us improve. We'd love to see you in the next episode. Enjoy. Enjoy.